Come on, that's good. We were watching that video, and I turned back to Chandler and Celeste. I said, you know, I, I, like, I actually like fruitcake. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Any other fruitcake lovers in here? Don't be ashamed. Stand up for yourself. I'm the only one, me and about four other people. So if you get fruitcake and you don't want it, you just know where to find me. I will take it off your hands. If you've been noticing people walking up to Vanessa and I giving us cash, that's a new tradition here at City Life. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's because of the Facebook post that I did this week. If you're not following me on Facebook, please jump on and, uh, because we're putting stuff out there every now and again. We have an opportunity to make a difference in a, a family uh, that's a neighbor of our church. We, we, we're not going to share names. We want to protect the dignity of people. This isn't about tax donations. This isn't going through the church. This is just about all of us rallying together to make a difference. And so if you've got an extra few dollars, we'll take that off your hands. And then we've got a family in the church that's going to go be with them to shop. We're going to surprise this single mom. Come on. i got a little six-year-old boy, little four-year-old girl. She doesn't think she's going to be able to do Christmas. We, we talked about buying the presents, but then we realized, you know, if we do it that way, it robs the mother of the joy of shopping for her own children. And, uh, and so we want her to be able to go and shop, and then we're going to have some families there. So I hope you will, will join in with us and, uh, and help to, to make that happen. So I'm excited about this series. I know I say that for every series, but uh, if I'm not excited about it, you're in trouble. So uh, I am excited for this series, the, whole, the series on the Holy Spirit, entitled The Forgotten Gift of Christmas, and we talked a little bit about last week while we're naming it that. If you weren't here, you can get that through the podcast. Also, I try to mention every week that the notes for the sermon are always online. Uh, the coming week uh, is a PDF document. We cover a lot of textual ground as a church. And so if you're a note taker, sometimes it's hard to keep up. And so we like to put the document out there so that if you miss something, uh, that you don't have to think about what you didn't write down, that you can continue to track on with us and know that those verses are going to be available uh, to you. So Father, just as we continue to dig into this series tonight about your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to open up our minds and our hearts to understand things that are completely mysterious. That the nature of who you are is so beyond human understanding that the only way that we will ever make progress is through the revelation that you give to us. And we pray that you would continue to give us revelation tonight and in the weeks to come. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together. Amen. Last week we talked about this idea that when we face mysteries, when we encounter things that we don't understand, it makes us uncomfortable, and we have lots of different human responses to that. That was the focus of last week's message. Tonight I want to talk about another response that we tend to have as people when we encounter something, something new, something we don't understand, and something inside of us longs to understand it. We begin to grasp, and we begin to do this thing that I want to talk to you about tonight, and to set that up and to illustrate it for us, we're going to look at this story in Acts 14. It's a curious story in Scripture when people encountered something beyond their understanding. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you can scroll there. Acts 14. I'm going to pick up beginning uh, with verse 8. This is Paul and Barnabas on a, one of their missions journeys. It says, while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. Come on, that's a great sermon for another time. May that expression always be found on our faces. 
So Paul called out to him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Now when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes. They made t-shirts and buttons and coffee mugs. No, they didn't do that. They thought Paul was Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town, so the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls, listen to this, they brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. And we have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. This is a great story for our series because this is what we tend to do when we face something that we don't understand. We try to understand it through our own experiences of our life. And and what you see happening here in Lystra, the the reason why they thought that they were Zeus and Hermes is because there was a legend in this town and some of the other towns surrounding it, like Honia and Derbe, that's also mentioned here in this journey. There was a legend that in times past, Zeus himself and Hermes, right? Zeus is the head of all the gods. Hermes was the, the, the messenger of the gods. And the legend was that Zeus and Hermes had one time visited this town and, and, and in, in the form of human people, the people didn't know they were gods, and no one gave them hospitality. They went from house to house asking for help. No one gave them hospitality except for one couple. And then this one couple who gave them hospitality, Zeus and Hermes, revealed themselves to this couple and proclaimed that one day they would return, one day they would return and destroy all the towns but they would save this one couple because of the hospitality they had. So these people, you're tracking with me? They're living with the expectation that one day Zeus and Hermes, they're gonna come back. And they're probably gonna come back disguised as people. And they know this time when they return, they're gonna destroy everything. So here in this moment, right, this is their legend. This is their tradition. This is their religion. So when they see Paul demonstrate power that was beyond anything that they had ever understood because Barnabas was older, they assumed he was Zeus. Because Paul was the preacher, they assumed he was Hermes. They were not gonna miss this time their opportunity to worship and be destroyed. You and I, when we face things that we don't understand, we desperately begin to reach back into our life experiences and we keep putting them on as filters, trying to discern this thing that feels undiscernible. Tonight, this is the caution that I give as we move forward in this series, is let's not be like the town of Lystra. As devoted followers of Christ, We can't understand the mystery of God through our own human experiences. 
the mystery of God is so great and so grand, especially when it comes to the Trinity, especially when it becomes, comes to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all being divine, the three being individual but also one. There is nothing in this world that compares And if we try to reach for our own experience to try to discover understanding, it's only ever going to lead to more confusion. Let me give you an example. If your kids have been around church for any amount of time, if you grew up in the church like I was at some point, some well-intended children's curriculum writer discovered that the banana was a triune fruit, And there was a flannel story of some sort to try to help you. If you've got to help people understand God through a banana, something has already gone terribly wrong. Can we just agree on that? We reach for things. We we try to find these illustrations to help children. But those illustrations, listen to me. People begin to lock in on those things. And they begin to form beliefs because of those illustrations. And at some point, they can lead us astray. Popular books, even one that I read recently, talks about the illustration of water being solid, gas, or liquid. It's a terrible illustration because water molecules cannot be all of those things at the same time. But this is the miracle of the Trinity. They don't take turns being one or the other. It's not the Father and then they tag out and become the Son. No, they're all three and one. It is a mystery. And there is nothing in this world that we can compare it to. There's the illustration of the sun. There's light, heat, and radiation. Everything. At some point, what we should just agree as Christians is that there is a mystery to the Trinity. And there's nothing in this natural world that compares to it. And any understanding that we're going to find that's going to deepen our revelation of understanding of the nature of God, it's only going to come through Scripture itself. How the Bible reveals God, what it says about who he is, and what it says about who he is not. Now, in our own defense as people, we're drawn to this idea of comparative learning because Jesus does it so much with the parables, right? When he's teaching us about spiritual things in the kingdom of God, so oftentimes he reaches into this natural world and he draws comparison. We're not saying that comparative learning is always bad because Jesus himself Use this strategy to bring understanding. But you never see comparative learning used in reference to the nature of who God is as three in one. And the reason that God doesn't do that is because the nature of who he is is so far above this natural world. There's nothing in the universe that is like him. And he did it that way on purpose, to set himself apart. But the Bible does give us some insight And that's where we're going tonight. Somebody say, think plural. Genesis 1.26 reads this way. I'm going to read a couple of these verses out of the New American Standard Bible. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And that let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It does not say, let me make man in my image according to my likeness. It says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now there's all kinds of fringe interpretations that deny 
the reality of the Trinity, but every solid, orthodox, mainstream, Christian, theological interpretation that's out there, we all agree that this text is referring to the nature of God, that he is many, that he's multiple. In fact, that he is three in one. Genesis 3.22, God comes back to this. There is a reason why God uses this in the beginning of Scripture because he's setting into motion, listen, the understanding of everything that's going to come after all the way to the book of Revelation. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. When you're thinking about the Holy Spirit, when you're thinking about the nature of God, you need to think plural. This is hard for us because when we think about other people, not that God is a person, but you understand the comparison, we don't think in plural. We think in individuals. Now, we might think of families in the plural, but we think of individuals in in a singular sense. But with God, we have to think in plural because there's three parts to who he is. In fact, the name that you find for God most often in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim, interestingly enough, is a plural word. There's a reason for that. Because God is revealing the nature of himself to us through his scripture. Over 2,500 times in the Old Testament, when the Bible is referring to the Lord or to God, 2,500 times it translates in Hebrew, Elohim. Whenever you have a Hebrew word that has the suffix I-M, it is a plural word referring to multiples. Now this gets interesting here. There are often times in Scripture, I'm just going to give you a few of them, there's many of them, where God gives himself a name. And oftentimes that name begins with the prefix E-L. And whenever you see the prefix E-L, it's like they were texting before texting was a thing. Instead of writing out the whole word, they just gave an abbreviation. Like I get texts from my kids all the time, I have to give it to my wife and say, I have no idea what they're asking of me right now, right? Give me the whole words, please. I'm 52. Help an old man out. And then I can't see it anyways if I don't have my reading glasses. So I'm like, that's right. E-L is short for Elohim. So whenever you're reading the Bible, if the translation that you've got, maybe it's a notation on the bottom, might, might say Lord or God, or sometimes your translation might give you the actual word. If there's an E-L there, it's short for Elohim. So when you come to words like El Shaddai, God Almighty, it's really Elohim Shaddai, which means not just God is mighty, he's saying we are mighty. This is important because God is ascribing divinity to both the Son and the Spirit. Elohim Shaddai, El Shaddai, we are mighty. El Elyon, which means God most high, is really Elohim Elyon, which is God saying, we are most high. El Roah means God sees. This idea that God sees everything. Not just what's happening in the world, but he sees what's happening in our hearts. He understands our thoughts. He knows our intentions, but not just the Father, but also the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's it's Elohim Roah. We see, the Son sees, the Spirit sees. 
We actually see this in operation when you're reading through the Gospels and Jesus is in a crowd and it tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. Why? Because he is Elohim, Roah, he sees just like the Father. God isn't just revealing the plural nature of who he is. He is also ascribing divinity to every part of who he is. When we think about the Holy Spirit, when we think about the nature of God, we need to think plural. Thinking plural is vital because it gives me permission to acknowledge the individuality of the Holy Spirit. The individuality of the Holy Spirit as part of the plural nature of who God is. For some of you, you've spent your whole Christian life thinking about the Father individually. You've thought about the Son individually, but you've never really thought about the Holy Spirit individually. It could be it's because you've been taught and you've been brought up with the belief that the Holy Spirit is really just God's way of showing up in a spiritual sense. But that's a misguided teaching because it denies the individuality of who the Holy Spirit is. Think plural. Somebody say, think personal. Genesis 1.26, and again, Genesis 3.22, the pronouns that God use, uses, they're not just plural, but they're also personal pronouns. Because God's trying to help us to understand that there's a relationship that we can pursue with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Together, but also individually. We have a tendency to think of the Holy Spirit as a power or a presence. But if we only think of him as a powerful, and he's most certainly powerful, and if we only think of him as a presence, and he certainly has a presence, he's here with us now. But if we only think of him in those terms, it will be impersonal instead of being personal. And if it's not personal, then we won't pursue pursue a relationship with him. Now, our human experience accounts for the personal nature of a father, and we love that God talks about himself like Pastor David's worship wrap-up. Come on, right? Wasn't that so rich? This is idea of the awesomeness of who God is, but his heart towards us is always that of a perfect father. He always has our best interest at heart. So when he relates himself as a father, something inside of us is drawn to that. We're drawn to the personal nature of that because of our human experience. Think about Jesus being God's son. Jesus tells the disciples right towards the end, I don't just call you disciples, now I call you friend. It's personal. There's a relationship. And the same should be true for the Holy Spirit. In this book, I referenced by John Bevere, The Holy Spirit, an introduction, which again, I know I said it's a great book, but I'm saying if you're going to read it, wait till after the series because there's different parts of the book that we don't necessarily walk with. And so I'd rather you have this series and then buy the book to read it and then put them together and draw your own conclusions. But parts of the book are amazing, and this is one of the parts of the book that I so love, that he talks about the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us this incredible list of all the ways the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit. And when you look at this list in its totality, which this is one of the reasons why we love authors like John Bevere and the gift that he is and many others like him, is because we might spend our whole life reading the Bible and we never connect all the pieces together, but then an author like this who has this gift of study and has a a calling to teach, they begin to pull all these different parts of scripture together and assimilate them and then when we look at it together how impactful it is. Romans 8, 27 talks about the Holy Spirit having a mind. 
1 Corinthians 12, 11 says that the Holy Spirit has a will, his own will, not just the will of the Father, not just the will of the Son, although the will is always moving in unison, but it speaks of his will. Galatians 5, 22 talks about the Holy Spirit having virtue. Acts 9, 31 says he comforts. Hebrews 3, 7 says he speaks. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 says he teaches. Ephesians 4, 30 talks about the Holy Spirit can feel sorrow. Hebrews 10, 29 says he can be insulted. Acts 7, 51 says he can be resisted. And Acts 5, 1 through 11 says he can be lied to. It sounds awfully personal, doesn't it? The reason why these texts are in here is because God wants us to understand that there's a relationship that we need to pursue with the Father, but there is also a relationship that we should pursue with the Son, but there is most certainly a relationship that we're supposed to pursue with the Holy Spirit. There is always going to be a mystery. There's always going to be a gap between our understanding and the full and complete revelation of who he is. That's not going to be made plain to us fully according to the promise of 1 Corinthians 13 until we get to heaven. The promise is that one day we will know as much as we are known, which is an incredible comparison because we already know that God is Elohim Ro'ah, which means he sees everything and knows us fully. So when Paul brings that comparison that one day we will know as we are known, it means that we'll know about him and the nature of who he is and all the mysteries of the universe to the same degree that God knows everything about us, which means all the way complete but until we get there there's going to be a gap but like we said last week just because there's a gap where you don't have permission to let that de-incentivize us to not move forward because just because there's a gap now between where we are and what we understand about the nature of God we can still move forward by revelation that comes through God's word we want to be a church that presses you and challenges you to keep moving forward to garner whatever revelation you can because that revelation, as we said last week, empowers you to go out and minister to a hurting world. Think personal. Thinking personal is vital because it gives me permission to pursue a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, think prayer. So maybe you're here right now and maybe you're asking this question Tonight, maybe you've asked it before, so who, who do I pray to? Do I pray to the Father? Do I pray to the Son? Or do I pray to the Holy Spirit? My answer is yes. <laughs> Something clicked for me years ago when I had this revelation that prayer is a group conversation. It might be that you've been here for some amount of time and you hear me praying, and I'm moving back and forth between talking to the Father, talking to the Son, and mentioning the Holy Spirit. And you might be thinking, that pastor's really confused. He doesn't even know who he's talking to. No, you're confused because you don't realize that prayer, it's a group conversation. We were with a couple yesterday at lunch, and we were talking about the Holy Spirit and talking a little bit about this message. And we were using the conversation that we were having at the table just that day. By the way, right, you know, I'm a sweet tea fanatic. And I discovered that uh, uh, sweet tea, Peking? No, it wasn't Peking. What? P.F. Chang's. Yeah, see, this is what happens when you get old. You can't even remember where you were having lunch on Friday. P.F. Chang's. How is it that P.F. Chang's, an Asian restaurant, has some of the best sweet tea I've ever had, Chris House? How is that possible? There are mysteries in this world that you're never going to fully understand, right? I want my tea dark like coffee, and I want it sweet like candy, and they check both boxes. I know. Praise the name. (laughs) 
So we're there talking. And you do the same thing when you're with a group of people. There were four of us, and we're having a conversation. Different people are taking turns. Sometimes you're talking to one person. The other two are listening. Sometimes both people, like two people are having a conversation. at this. this is, right, you understand how to do this. You grow up learning how to do it. If you're not, you're the socially awkward person in the room. Right? You understand that when you're in groups, whether it's a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller, there's an ebb and flow to group conversation. You're talking to all the people. Sometimes, again, people are talking at the same time. Sometimes you stop and listen because somebody else has something to say to you. That's what prayer is supposed to be like for us. Luke 11, 1 through 4 says, Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came up to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples, Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. And then as we were to continue on, we would find what's called the Lord's Prayer. Now, just because this text talks about praying to the Father, it does not say that you can't engage Jesus and the Holy Spirit in prayer also. It doesn't say pray to the Father, but make sure that you never mention me or the Holy Spirit. Just because this text is in the affirmative in my conversation with the Father doesn't mean that it leaves out the rest of Scripture that talks about who else is present in prayer. For example, Romans 8.34. Who then will condemn us, right? If you've never read Romans 8, give yourself the gift this Christmas and read this chapter in the Bible. It's powerful. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. Listen to this. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Now when you take Romans 8 and partner it with Luke 11, something powerful begins to take shape. As you step into moments of prayer and you begin to petition the Father, who I would say is the one who is considering the prayer, we're supposed to have a picture that Jesus is also present in that moment and he's there at the right hand of the Father making intercessions on our behalf as we pray. Then you take 1 Corinthians 2. Beginning in verse 9, it says, that is what scripture means when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. This is a quote out of Isaiah. No mind has imagined what God has prepared for those that love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit, listen to this, searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. So as you come into a place of prayer and imagine God at the throne of heaven and we're petitioning him, we should have this picture of talking to our Father who loves us, who we have an audience with him whenever we desire. And there's Jesus, right, our Savior and our friend. He's there in the moment and he's making intercessions on our behalf as we pray and the Holy Spirit is standing here with us because he is our advocate, he's our counselor which we're going to get into next week and what does it say it says the holy spirit actually supernaturally begins to reveal to us the heart of the father to make sure that what we're praying is in line with his will all of us together are having a conversation when we step into a moment of prayer it changes the way you think when you're in prayer 
It helps you in those moments because in that moment as you're praying, you can talk to the Father. You can talk to the Holy Spirit. You can talk to Jesus. You can talk about it interchangeably because they're one, but they're not just one. They're also individuals, each with a function, each with a purpose, each with a role. Prayer is a group conversation. And if you were to keep reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's powerful. Because it kind of wraps up and it begins to talk about how the reason why we can even understand the things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us that are hidden in the heart of the Father is because we have the mind of Christ. Trinity right there, 1 Corinthians 2. Where we're going to dig around next week is this idea of if the Holy Spirit's here, does that mean Jesus isn't here? And I would say, no, that's not what it means. See, this is one of the ways that I, I, I part ways with, with John Bevere's book. I'm going to teach on that next week. Sometimes we confuse texts in the Bible that are speaking to role and function, and we misunderstand that as location. Just a little bit of a commercial for next Saturday. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up. I had one more that I'm going to do called Think Praise. I'm going to roll that into next week. So I was up in my office earlier today. I'm going to just break from the message a little bit because I feel like this is for someone here. I was up in my office earlier today and was just praying and printing out my notes, going over stuff, you know, just, just getting ready. And, uh, uh, you know, I have the Alexa thing in my, in my, uh, in my office and, and uh, it was playing Christmas music, and, and, uh, and I just had this thought, which I've never asked Alexa this question. I said, uh, Alexa, you know, the music pauses. If you have one of these, right, it gives you a great sense of authority, doesn't it? <laughs> Feeds right into our egos. I said, uh, Alexa, what do you believe about Jesus? I know. Anybody ever asked that before? Anybody? Am I the only one? Breaking some ground here. Come on. Well, if you come back next Saturday, I'm going to tell you what she said. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Alexa said, this is what Alexa said. Said, many people have views about religion. That was her answer. Well, I don't give up that easy. So I said, Alexa, what's your view of religion? And Alexa's response was, I can't find the answer to the question that I just heard. And I thought, our city is full of people just like that. Just like that. They can't find the answer to the question they just heard. And the question they're hearing is the one that's stirring in their heart is who is Christ supposed to be to me? And what I would say to you is the Holy Spirit wants to use you to have a conversation, not with a little round box, but with a living person who is eternal who needs to know that Christ is the Savior of the world. Came in a major, died on a cross, rose from the dead, is coming back again, and has a plan and a purpose for their life. Not just for here and now, come on, but for all eternity. And you and I are supposed to be the messengers of that gospel in our world. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray 
not just for deeper understanding for this series that we're taking a deep dive into some weighty theological things. But I pray, Father, that in this moment, that even as we pray now, that for some people in here, they would see they're a part of a group conversation right now that your Holy Spirit is right there standing next to them, that they would have a vision of, of, of the Son just making intercessions. And, and maybe even as we're worshiping now, you're going to do something for them that maybe has never happened before. They're going to see a person who is an assignment to engage them in an Alexa conversation about what they believe about Christ. Help us see the ones you've assigned to us for this Christmas season and give us the courage to reach out and tell someone that Jesus still saves. And it's in your name that we pray. Come on and everybody sit together. Amen. Let's worship.